Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. Hello, I'm Hugh. And I'm Joshua. You're listening to The Wrap-Up, your fortnightly dose of international news. Now, a lot has happened since our last episode, so we've got some important stories to cover. Let's get into them. Hugh, our first story takes place in Africa, more specifically on the Ethiopian-Sudan border. Now, the UN reported this last week that around 7,000 people have fled Ethiopia, crossing into Sudan to seek safety. Why are so many people fleeing Ethiopia right now? Well, the UN says that these individuals are fleeing violence that's rapidly escalated in Western Ethiopia, more specifically in the Benish Angmul Gumuz region, which I'll just call the BG region for short. And the BG region has long been plagued by violence. So hundreds of people have died and over 100,000 have been displaced from their homes in recent years. And the conflict is largely due to tensions between the many different ethnic groups that exist in this part of Ethiopia. Now, I didn't realise, and this is perhaps showing my own ignorance here, Ethiopia, in fact, has over 80 different ethnic groups, making it one of the most diverse countries in Africa. And of those 80 ethnic groups, the Gumuz and Berta groups are native to the BG region. But in recent years, a variety of other so-called outsider ethnic groups have begun to move into the area, really attracted by the region's fertile land and by agricultural opportunities. As a result, those outsider groups now outnumber the Gamuz and the Berta peoples by a significant degree, and that's causing a lot of tension. So the Gamuz and Berta peoples claim that they've been pushed off their land by these other ethnic groups and by foreign investors who are also buying up land over there. And that tension has increasingly spilled over into the violence that we've seen. Yeah, so last year we heard a lot of news about violence in Ethiopia's Tigray region. Uh, Is this current upheaval connected to that violence at all? The short answer is no. So Tigray is in northern Ethiopia and some distance away from the BG region that we were just talking about. The violence in Tigray has been occurring largely due to armed conflict between the government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or the TPLF, as they're known for short. And the TPLF used to control Ethiopia, and they were only ousted from power in 2018 after nearly 30 years of rule. And it's thought that this current skirmish between the TPLF and the government has ultimately resulted in the deaths of 52,000 people, while another 60,000 have also fled to Sudan. And there's also been reports of major human rights abuses in the last couple of weeks. Amnesty International is calling it a horrific tragedy. Scores and possibly hundreds of civilians have been stabbed and hacked to death in the northern Ethiopian region of Tigray. Witnesses say local forces... So while the government has claimed victory now, the area is still very volatile at the moment. What does all this instability mean for Ethiopia and the wider region? Well, first of all, it's having a major effect on the Ethiopian people themselves. So more than 2 million people have fled their homes and the conflict has caused severe shortages of food, water and medicine. So there's really significant humanitarian consequences, obviously. But it also has political consequences for Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed. He came to power in 2018 promising to unite Ethiopia And he even won the Nobel Peace Prize for brokering a peace deal between Ethiopia and neighbouring Eritrea. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided 
to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2019 to Ethiopian Prime Minister Abi Ahmed Ali for his efforts to achieve peace. But clearly he's still struggling to fulfil his promise of uniting the country and to tackle the economic and social problems that are stemming from this violence. So those are the domestic consequences. In terms of the regional consequences, as I've mentioned, tens of thousands of Ethiopians have sought refuge in Sudan recently. But Sudan is in the midst of an economic crisis of its own, and the influx of refugees is putting further strain on it. And finally, Ethiopia is of great strategic importance in the Horn of Africa, which has long been plagued by violence. Ethiopia was, in fact, once seen as the most stable and the most democratic country in the region, and indeed had potential to become a trade and manufacturing hub. But no doubt the current violence is probably prompting people to reassess those views. Well, that was the sound of an Su-30 fighter jet flying over the Armenian capital of Yerevan last week, after the nation's military issued a statement calling on Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan to leave office immediately. Now, Joshua, as I'm sure you can appreciate, the situation is moving so quickly that it's quite possible that circumstances will have changed since we've recorded this episode. But essentially, Prime Minister Pashinyan has been facing months of protests ever since he signed a ceasefire agreement with Azerbaijan in 2020. That ceasefire effectively ended the two countries' war over the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. And by the time it had been signed, Azerbaijan's military had pushed back Armenian forces across much of the front line. And that meant that the ceasefire was in many ways an Armenian capitulation, as much as it was a two-way agreement to end the war. So now Armenia's church, much of the nation's political leadership, and thousands of voters have blamed Pashinyan for their country's defeat in the war against Azerbaijan, with much of that group now demanding that he either resumes the fight to reclaim land that was taken by Azerbaijan, or that he steps down in favour of a national unity government made up of Armenia's opposition. Wow, so it sounds like pretty much the whole country is uniting against the PM for signing a peace treaty, of all things. And now it looks like the military's also getting involved too. Well, that's right. And previously, the Armenian military had kept a rather low profile in the dispute. And it seemed like they were leaving the nation's opposition parties to call for Pashinyan's resignation on their own. But after the prime minister dismissed the deputy chief of the Armenian military for criticising a statement he made about the efficacy of Armenian missile strikes during the war, the military joined the political opposition and others in calling for Pashinyan to step down. So at this point, Josh, 40 senior officers have now signed onto the statement calling for Pashinyan's resignation, with that group being led by the Armenian military's chief of general staff, Onik Gasparian. And that has in turn led Pashinyan to describe the military's actions as an attempted coup. He's now tried to dismiss Colonel General Gasparian from command twice, although Gasparian himself has refused to step down. So we just heard a clip of Pashinyan there calling that military's actions a potential coup. So what happens now? Well, interestingly, with the military calling on Pashinyan to resign and Pashinyan attempting to dismiss key military leaders, actually we have a very clear power vacuum that's emerged. And in this situation, many are looking to President Armin Sarkisian for guidance. And that presents an interesting dilemma, since the role of Armenia's president is usually rather symbolic. 
Sarkeesian himself is unlikely to replace Pashinyan, but he does have the power to approve or reject the Prime Minister's dismissal of Colonel General Kasparian. He's already rejected Pashinyan's first attempt to dismiss Kasparian, claiming that the move was unconstitutional. But the fact that he alone gets to decide whether or not the Prime Minister can dismiss the leader of the military leaves him in a very powerful position where he can decide whether to back Pashinyan or to support the military and the opposition. President Sarkisian has previously asked for Pashinyan to step down. But he has made it clear that his priority is in calming the situation down, rather than making any rash moves. So at the time of recording, he is considering Pashinyan's second request to dismiss Kasparian, which was launched almost immediately after the first one was rejected. So it looks like regardless of what he decides here, he's effectively choosing a side. Do we know what side he'll come down on? Well, Joshua, right now at the time of recording, you and I don't, but there's a good chance that by the time this episode has been released, we will. So if you're listening, it's quite likely that the major news networks are running a story about the situation right now. Will President Sarkisian allow the stalemate to continue? Will he decide to back the Prime Minister? Or will he choose to side with the military? Only time will tell. Well, Hugh, I'm going to now talk about a new pandemic-related phrase and concept that's grown in popularity over the last few weeks, and that's vaccine diplomacy. What is vaccine diplomacy? Vaccine diplomacy. Vaccine diplomacy. Vaccine diplomacy. Yeah, I've definitely heard that term thrown around a lot, but what exactly does it refer to? Well, it refers to the way in which richer, more developed countries are using coronavirus vaccines to reward or to influence less wealthy developing nations. And I think in many ways it was probably inevitable that this would happen, concerning perhaps from a humanitarian point of view, but unfortunately unsurprising all the same. And this past fortnight has seen some pretty significant examples of vaccine diplomacy in action. Yeah, that's a big deal. What are some specific examples of that? Well, let's first of all have a look at Israel. So just last week, Prime Minister Netanyahu announced that Israel would send thousands of spare vaccines to foreign allies. And that announcement was really controversial because while Israel has vaccinated over half of its own population, it has provided very few vaccines to the Palestinians who currently live under Israeli control. In fact, Israel pledged to send twice as many doses overseas than it has sent to the nearly 5 million Palestinians living in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. But what makes the decision even more controversial and interesting is the identity of the countries that Israel has promised to send the vaccines to. Yeah, I'd say controversial is certainly an understatement. So if the vaccines aren't going to the Palestinian people, where are they going instead? Well, they're all going to the Czech Republic, to Honduras, Hungary, and Guatemala. And what is it that all these countries have in common? The president of the Central American state of Honduras announced his intention to relocate his country's embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. Guatemala is to move its embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. The Czech Republic has just announced a three-step plan to make the move, following the example of both the United States and Guatemala. They've all recognised Israel's claim of sovereignty over Jerusalem, and in most cases, they've chosen to move their embassies there. 
So the vaccine shipments to these countries were seen by many as Israel rewarding them for their political support. And while the first few shipments went by unchallenged, there was considerable backlash, even from some members of Netanyahu's cabinet. And just over the weekend, news broke that some of these shipments would be put on pause because of a whole lot of legal concerns and possible legal challenges. But that's not the only example of vaccine diplomacy in Israel at the moment. The government has also promised to buy tens of thousands of doses on behalf of the Syrian government in exchange for the return of an Israeli civilian who's currently detained in Syria. So you effectively have a prisoner swap that's being paid for by vaccines. Well, that is definitely a new factor to consider in international politics. But how is this going to influence relations between countries going forward? Yeah, it's a good question. I think as vaccine diplomacy really gears up, the key thing to watch will be the growing rivalry between China and India. So even before the pandemic, they had a pretty fractious relationship. Both countries see themselves as influential world powers and both want to buy up influence abroad. But the vaccine race has really heightened the stakes here. So China has developed two vaccines, the Sinovac and the Sinopharm jabs. And it's been exporting them to 27 countries, the majority of which are developing nations. And then it's also been providing additional coronavirus aid to a further 53 nations that are currently in need. So part of the strategy behind this is to rehabilitate the country's reputation, given most people believe that the vaccine originated there. But it also serves to expand China's influence overseas. Now, India, on the other hand, has been described as the pharmacy of the world. And for good reason too. So India is producing the bulk of the AstraZeneca vaccines and hopes to be manufacturing about a billion doses a year by the end of 2021. And to give China a run for its money, it's developed the Vaccine Friendship Initiative, under which it's given doses to places like Myanmar, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka and the Maldives. So both of them are clearly vying for influence here and using vaccines to achieve it. And the place where this rivalry is most obvious, I think, is Nepal. So China initially promised Nepal 300,000 doses of the Sinopharm jab back in January. And India quickly followed that up with an offer of 1 million AstraZeneca vaccines. And in response, China then upped its donation to 500,000 doses of the Sinopharm jab. So there's a bit of competition going on there. But in my opinion, one of the most concerning aspects of this competition is the state-sponsored media campaigns that are seeking to discredit each other's vaccination programs. So Chinese state media have been publishing stories criticising India's vaccine rollout, while Indian commentators have claimed that China effectively exported the virus to the world. And that online war has led to an increase in misinformation about vaccines, and some experts fear potentially greater vaccine hesitancy. So in addition to potentially altering the global distribution of power, this rivalry may also be having a more immediate impact on people's trust in vaccines. Well, Josh, I know this is something that we discussed in our last episode, and I think we expressed a tinge of optimism that countries might act responsibly with vaccines, but perhaps that optimism was misplaced. Les indépendantistes au pouvoir en Nouvelle-Calédonie. Ils ont remporté mercredi la majorité au gouvernement collégial, une première depuis l'accord de. Well, that was news of a major political development in the French Pacific territory of New Caledonia. 
where for the first time since 1999, a pro-independence government has been formed. The new government was elected about two weeks ago after its predecessor collapsed, following several significant disagreements between cabinet members. But before that collapse, the government had been made up of a coalition of pro- and anti-independence parties, with the anti-independence loyalist parties holding a slight advantage over their pro-independence counterparts. But following significant disruptions to New Caledonia's main industry of nickel mining, a worsening public budget, and a general collapse in relations between the loyalist and pro-independence parties, the cabinet's pro-independence members announced their joint resignation in early February, and that triggered a fresh vote within the New Caledonian Territorial Congress. That vote was subsequently won by pro-independence parties, who forged a new alliance with the small Oceanic Awakening Party, which had previously sided with the Loyalist camp. So as a result of this political upheaval, the pro-independence coalition now controls a majority six out of the 11 cabinet seats available, and that's left much of the archipelago's executive power in separatist hands. That's fascinating. I feel like that's a pretty significant power shift in New Caledonia. And I certainly haven't heard anything in the news about it, though. I suspect a few of our listeners are probably in the same boat. So what else can you tell us about the situation in the Territory at the moment? Well, arguably the biggest story in New Caledonia right now is still the somewhat unanswered question of its independence from France. And that's been the leading story for a long time now. Uh, And so I think it's important that we start with some very brief history just to get an idea of just how far back some of these political tensions go. So in 1998, an agreement called the New Mayor Accord was signed between the French government in Paris and the pro-independence and loyalist parties in New Caledonia. And that agreement essentially provided a roadmap to several independence referendums, which would determine once and for all whether New Caledonia would remain a part of France or become an independent state. The first of those referendums took place in 2018 and the second in 2020, with a third and final referendum scheduled for November of 2022. Now, the Loyalist camp has won both votes so far. Voters on the Pacific islands of New Caledonia have once again rejected independence from France, although the margin is narrower than in the last referendum. But pro-independence parties appear to be gaining support ahead of the last vote which means there is some chance the third and final referendum could actually yield a result in favour of independence. So as I'm sure you can appreciate, with one year until the last vote, tensions are quite high between the two movements. Yeah, I imagine it's the major thing that's being discussed as the political campaigns heat up. But are there any other issues that are at play here in the election? Well, unfortunately, no, it's not the only issue at play. There are several other problems that are affecting New Caledonia at the moment. As I mentioned before, New Caledonia's nickel industry is currently in tatters, and that's not an insignificant fact. The nickel industry is easily New Caledonia's most important economic asset, especially with tourism coming to a halt due to COVID-19. But after the international owners of New Caledonia's main nickel processing plant tried and failed to sell the facility to another consortium, a political crisis emerged between the pro-independence and loyalist parties, which eat, with each side blaming the other for the industry's poor performance. And then you can add to that a significant budget deficit and worsening relations between the two sides as the 2022 referendum approaches. And we have a recipe for an even bigger political crisis. This is being made worse by the fact that the pro-independence camp had to fight an internal battle just to pick the next president. So it's fair to say that with several issues front and centre, New Caledonian political leaders will need to act fast to restore the previous lines of communication and cooperation in order to form an effective government. But of course, Josh, with the stakes as high as they are, that's going to be a lot easier said than done. Well, we'll just have to wait and see what happens and see whether or not New Caledonia becomes officially independent within the next 
12 months. That's right. And there will be an article coming out on the Young Diplomats publication site. So feel free to check that out as well. Written by our very own Hugh, I believe. I believe so. (laughs) Definitely go check it out, everyone. And that's all for this wrap-up. Make sure you check out next week's in-depth episode where Jen will be interviewing Dr. Joshua Ruse about political evangelicalism and the far right. And follow us, the Young Diplomat Society, on Facebook or Instagram for more great analysis and content. We'll see you next week, everyone. Bye.